You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 376, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. And I'm your co-host, Gemma Isroff. You heard that right. I mentioned in our debut episode, the Ruby on Rails podcast will be bringing on more co-hosts so that we can get regular updates from a variety of people in the community, including Gemma. So Gemma, we'll start with a very easy question. How are you? I am doing really well. I'm in Seattle at the moment, which means a lot of hiking and running and walking, all the things I love to do. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm actually headed out to Denver next week. I have not been on a plane since the pandemic. And I'm super psyched because I'm actually going to get to meet my teammates. And I've been at Texas for almost a year. And so it's, it's just going to be crazy to meet everybody in person. Oh, whoa. How are you feeling about flying after all this time? I'm a little bit apprehensive. I'm so glad that a couple of years ago, I did all the busy work in order to get TSA pre-check. So at least that part will be a bit smoother. And I realize I'll probably have to wear a mask on the plane, which is totally fine with me. But I'm just nervous, you know, because I've been working remotely and from home, I've always had all my things, Gemma, like all the things. Mm. <laughs> and so now I'm leaving my things behind. <laughs> and it's just like, am I going to have everything that I need? But of course, I can go to the store and replace whatever. So it's a little bit weird in that sense. But I'm so excited just to your point. I'm so excited to just be outside in a really fabulous location. Oh, yeah, that'll be fun. And does Texas have office space that you'll be able to go to? Yeah. So we actually have a space in Boulder that I think we're eventually going to give up and move down to Denver. We're doing mostly things out of a hotel that the remote workers are going to be staying at. Mm. But we're also doing a full company Rockies game on Wednesday. So that should be a lot of fun. Yeah, that sounds really, really fun. Have you been in a stadium since the... Oh, goodness, no. (laughs) Everything (laughs) is new. Yeah, (laughs) might be a little sensory overload. It might be, especially since I do not always watch the sports. (laughs) But that's not really the point. It's to get to know my colleagues. I'm excited. Baseball games are good for that, especially with the new folks you've been onboarding. Yeah. So we had our three junior developers start last week. We hired two for the front end and one for the back end. And Gemma, they're just absolutely amazing. They're already making meaningful contributions to the code bases being amazing about, you know, quality assurance, asking the right questions and really just lending themselves to the culture of the team. We spent, you know, a very long time hiring these junior developers. There was no shortage of resumes, of course, that came in, but I'm really happy with the developers we selected. Yeah. And I would love to hear more about the interview process, but also it sounds really intentional to have them all starting together. I'm sure that's helpful for them. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I was just talking to our architect, Paul, who I've mentioned on the show many times. We hired this cohort of junior developers because to me, I wanted them to be able to lean on one another. And I knew that the questions that they would be asking would probably be relevant to each other, regardless of whether or not they're working on the front end or the Mm. back end. Now, I'd love to get your take on this. We're turning around and we're going to hire three senior Rails developers. And so Paul and I were discussing that and we intentionally do not want to hire them as a cohort. We instead want to bring them in one at a time. So that way they can really question the code base and really get individualized attention around the experiences they already had. What do you think? Yeah, that's a really interesting take. I think one side benefit of hiring the juniors on first is they can almost take a role of 
mentoring even the senior developers as they come on of the juniors will have been through the setup process and the get to know the company process and the the listening process. And I think having the juniors be able to play that role of answering questions and answering onboarding questions is putting them in quite a position of growth, which is really fascinating. And then to your question about bringing on the seniors one by one. Yeah, it's, it's a curious one. I've definitely heard some apprehension around senior developers come in and in the first week have all this feedback and thoughts and ways to do things differently and don't take the time to listen and to actually figure out the problems that a company needs solving. But I think bringing them on one by one will definitely be able to illuminate their different skill sets and experiences. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Currently, our engineering team is 15 members, and that includes, you know, quality assurance and UX. And you figure you bring in three senior Rails developers, like that is definitely a culture shock. So adding three junior developers who are open and like have not experienced this before, that is not so shocking. But bringing Mm -hmm. on three senior devs that have like deep experience and thoughts around how things should be run definitely is a culture shock. Especially as you think about building remote culture, too. I think that's a whole different to use our sports reference earlier, a whole different ballgame of uh, figuring out how to keep the culture or grow the culture effectively, even whilst you're somewhat remote. Totally agreed. Now, one thing I was really excited about is that one of the junior developers is going to be joining WNB.RB. So I'm just always thrilled when I meet someone who doesn't know about it yet. And then I get to tell them and be like, there's this amazing organization you should be joining. And so three of us at TextUs will all be eagerly watching the fireside chat that you're planning. Can you tell me and the listeners more about what's going on there? Oh, yeah. I'm so excited to have them. Yes. On July 27th, we at WNBRB, which is a women non-binary Ruby group, are going to host a panel of three folks, Kirsten Pushka, Gabby Stefanini, and Sylvia Franchak, where they'll be giving a panel around technical speaking and every step in the process of technical speaking from ideating a topic, writing a CFP if relevant, to actually delivering the talk, prepping the talk, delivering the talk, and answering Q&A. I'm so looking forward to this. I think the three of them have really incredible experience giving and prepping technical speaking. And I've been thinking quite a bit as the moderator around this question of how to ask effective questions that'll allow them to shine light on all their experience and expertise. Because you host this podcast and obviously are so skilled at asking questions, wanted to just pick your brain a little on how you think about structuring questions and how I might think about going about it for this panel. Yeah, that's such a good question. I know that I've taken a unique take on the podcast because when I invite a new guest onto the show, I kind of pitch them on what I want to discuss with them. And then I offer to send the questions that I'm going to ask ahead of time. But I always pre-prep ahead saying, hey, you know, these are the questions. They might fall into this order. But honestly, if you say something really intelligent that I don't understand, I'm going to want to dig into that further. And so that's the beauty of having an editor so that you can uh, take that (laughs) quick pause. You know, I tell them that they can take a pause and look something up. So they sound like the walking Wikipedia. (laughs) But to answer your question... I try to do some research on the person so that I have a general understanding, but I also want to approach it from a place where 
I don't want to be an expert on the subject asking another expert about it. I want to come at it in a way that someone who doesn't know a lot about it can ask like those easy questions and not feel intimidated. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. Like if I learn too much about it in advance or know it too deeply, I might fall prey to using the acronyms or asking questions that wouldn't be accessible for a beginner. Totally. Sometimes asking the obvious question you discover that you might actually have a discrepancy between you and the speaker. Mm. And that kind of puts you on the same footing. That sounds like a really good technique. I also, I'm definitely borrowing your, having been on this podcast before, I I know the way you send questions in advance, I find really helpful. And so I'm definitely planning to borrow that technique and send them questions. I also just don't want to catch them off guard, right? Like it's, it's going to be, I think a lot less effective of a panel if they have to think on the spot and try say something that really puts their experience, uh, synthesizes it effectively on the spot like that. And I'd rather them have time to think it through and think about how they might want to answer questions. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Scout APM. Scout APM is leading edge application performance monitoring designed to help Rails developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the headache or overhead of enterprise platform feature bloat. With a developer-centric UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to source code, you can quickly pinpoint and resolve performance issues like N plus one queries, slow database queries, memory bloat, and more. Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails let you rest easy knowing that Scout's on watch and resolving performance issues before your customers ever see them. Scout has also launched its new error monitoring feature add-on for Ruby applications. Now you can connect your error reporting and application monitoring data on one platform. See for yourself why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend and try their error monitoring and APM free for 14 days, no credit card required. And as an added bonus for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash Ruby on Rails. Thanks as always to Scout for their continued support. I'm curious, will it be open for the audience to ask questions as well? Yeah, so we're planning to send ahead of time a Google form or something like that to ask people to pre-submit questions. And then I think we'll also open up the chat towards the end, maybe the last 10, 15 minutes and ask folks to chat in. I think the way we're doing Zoom, it's going to be a panel structure. So I think it makes it harder for audience members to ask live questions verbally as we've been doing in the WNB stuff, but hopefully through the Zoom chat, they'll be able to. That's fantastic. I'm curious from your standpoint, I think a lot of people give the advice if you're interested in getting started with technical speaking, it might be a good idea to start with softer topics and then gain more confidence and then go into the more technical talks. But correct me if I'm wrong, Gemma, I feel like you went for the technical talks (laughs) right from the beginning. (laughs) I personally definitely went straight to the technical talks. I hadn't heard that around giving talks around the, the human skills first. I think the reason I went for technical first is I really enjoy the technical side, obviously, but I think in a way it actually, to me, seemed more approachable than the human side. I think a lot of the human side of software development requires a lot more expertise and has a lot more nuance, whereas the technical side can be more factual and more objective. So that felt easier to me to give a talk about than something more subjective where I was putting out an opinion that could be 
really different from what others thought or kind of getting into that grayer zone. So I'm curious, have you ever done live coding in a technical talk? I have in internal technical talks, so like within the workplace, but not to an external audience. (laughs) I'm always so impressed when people pull off live coding. I feel like it takes a supreme level of confidence to be able to do effectively. I totally agree with you. I have yet to do it. I have started to delve into more technical talks and Mm. it is a bit intimidating, you know, put a code snippet on a screen and say, hey, this is fact. I want you to believe this is fact and let's discuss things around it. But you are right that the technical talks tend to be more factual. And then the, the softer kinds of talks or the human talks, you know, those in some ways can be more opinion. Yeah. Which I know you've given some of both. So did you start with the human skills talk? Totally. I definitely did. I started off with talks about like how to approach like a certain problem or how to Mm. work well within a team. I probably started talking maybe about six or seven years ago, and this was even before the podcast. And so maybe, you know, it helped that eventually I did get experience with the podcast. So I felt better about portraying those kinds of concepts in an audio format and got more comfortable there. Because it's, it's really hard to be on a podcast and read out code snippets and have that be interesting. <laughs> yeah, I definitely can't say I've seen that pulled off effectively too many times. But what got you first started six or seven years ago in giving talks in general? You know, when I learned how to code, I was living out in San Francisco. And my God, was the community just, just so rich in terms mm. of how many meetups there were. And these meetups were so thirsty, just looking for people to do content. And so I never felt I was putting somebody out by like taking a talk slot because they just needed so many people. I was a member of Women Who Code out in San Francisco, and it was such a big community that they had a specific Ruby night. And so it was funny. It was like Ruby Tuesdays. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember like giving a talk, I think at Zendesk, and it was like my first talk and I was shaking. But to be honest with you, it was in front of like eight or 10 people. And so it didn't feel that intimidating. It wasn't recorded. I felt like it was a really safe zone to get started in. Yeah, we're definitely trying to set up that safe environment at WMB.RB too, which I think has been effective. But I really hear you about the fear behind giving your first talk. Thinking about it a little more, I think the other reason it felt almost easier for me to start with technical speaking is because I was used to giving that internally at work. Like I haven't given any internal talks around human skills, but I have around more technical topics. How did you get started with internal talks? Because to be honest with you, we do have developer lunch and learn at Texas. So there's like an opportunity to give a talk there, but I haven't worked at many organizations where giving a talk is, you know, like a normal thing. Yeah, I think it was in almost that lighter environment of like a lunch and learn style where it definitely felt lower pressure, less stress. People were eating their lunch and just asking questions. But I've been in really positive cultures where we want to make sure that engineering as a whole is understanding little projects that little teams are doing or some of the bigger projects even. And so we'll give technical talks around like motivating a project how we went about problem solving and thinking about all the different ways we could solve that project that needed to be done and then actually executing on it and seeing the results. And 
that to me felt really approachable because it was something around like anytime I did it, like I've been thinking about this for so long or have been working on this for so long. It's really just talking about more of what I'm doing. Yeah. It felt less formal and it felt less scary almost than putting together a slide deck for RailsConf or RubyConf or something like that, but still felt like I was flexing that skill of giving a technical talk. I agree. It's like, it's almost like a soft landing because you're likely giving a talk that is relevant to the code base that you're working in. So the people who are watching, like your audience already has context around what you're talking about and they're, you've got bought in interest. And in some ways it's a little scarier because they do know exactly what you're talking about. You can't just make up anything, but like, it does help that your audience is already deeply interested in what you're talking about. Completely. And I would also imagine at a company with a small team, like text us or a smaller team, there's some familiarity to, I don't know, you probably know people's pets' names. And so you know them, right? You know, they're rooting for you. And it feels to me a lot less scary than when you look out into an audience and know only a handful of the people who are watching your talk. See, now I think you've hacked into our Slack instance because I just did a pet roll call last week. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you, you do know the, the full roster. <laughs> I sure do. This is incredibly, imp- as a raving dog fan, it is incredibly important to me what my teammates' dogs are up to. So you know me quite well, Gemma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely do know. I think that kind of thing is also, as a manager, it's important to have that camaraderie on a team and motivate that camaraderie on a team where people feel comfortable if they want sharing things about their dogs or things like that. Which you're so right about. And in some ways, like I've been trying to garner that in my one-on-ones with my individual reports because I don't want to view those Mm -hmm. status meetings and I do want them to kind of go off the cuff. We have a weekly bugs and chores meeting. It is the most ridiculous (laughs) meeting I have a week because we always go somewhere random. It's really fun. We end up laughing. Mm. It's trying to build that camaraderie without being in person. But that being said, next week, I have a lot of catch up to do, you know, like where, you know, just that interpersonal catch up of even knowing how tall my team members are (laughs) is is still a mystery to me. So The height thing has definitely thrown me for a few virtual converted to in-person introductions. I am curious to hear more, though, about how you think about having that natural connection is really important, but how you think about being intentional about it, ensuring it'll happen without forcing it as a manager. I think I can guide myself to make sure that I am reaching out and being thoughtful about things that I know matters to my teammates. But creating an environment where everybody on the team is doing that regardless of whether or not they're working on the same project together or even are currently in the same stack is something that I'm striving to work towards. And in some ways, I try to create conversation topics in our shared environment to try to make those connections. But I'll be honest with you, Gemma, it's very much a work in progress. It seems like a really difficult thing to me, I think, especially because some people don't want to bring a personal self to work and that's totally fine too. And then navigating that I've definitely struggled with in the past. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Honey Badger. I have been a Honey Badger user for the past seven years. When I start a new job, I no longer ask, do you use Honey Badger? It is instead, where is my Honey Badger login? What's Honey Badger, you ask? Well, when application errors happen, it's nice to know that Honey Badger has your back. 
Honey Badger makes you a DevOps hero by combining error, uptime, and check-in monitoring into a single, easy-to-use platform. Honey Badger sends you real-time alerts with all the context needed to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding so you can quickly find it, fix it, and get on with your day. The included uptime and cron monitoring also lets you know when your external services are having issue or your background jobs go missing or silently fail. Go to honeybadger.io and discover how Star, Josh, and Ben created a 100% bootstrap monitoring solution. Why is this important? Self-funding means that they only answer to you, the developer, rather than a venture capital overlord. Thanks to Honey Badger for supporting the show. I think the hard part, and again, we discussed this at work, is that when you're not all in person, you miss the water cooler chat with someone Mm -hmm. that isn't even on your radar as someone who might be relevant to your work. So you might hear a salesperson on the phone telling somebody that we don't have this feature. And meanwhile, we've had that feature for like six months and it might be feature flagged so that they don't know about it. It's those kinds of interactions that are really hard to, you know, draw together. Or, you know, you might find out that someone is, you know, getting a puppy. Not having that random interaction is really hard to recreate remotely. Yeah, completely. I've seen teams try to do it with things like the virtual coffees or virtual chats, but I think those can also sometimes feel a lot more forced than like grabbing water or coffee or or something in person. I will tell you what was really effective the other day is that our CEO at Texas, anytime he ends a meeting early, he will declare you get that time back and then he will tell you how many minutes you've now gotten back into your schedule. And I saw a meme the other day that was Leonardo DiCaprio saying like that one person in a meeting giving you time back and he's just like throwing money out. And so I posted that in our Slack being like, this isn't terribly professional, but my God, the entire organization laughed about it and laughed about it for like a week. (laughs) And so it's like creating that environment where that kind of silliness is allowed because that's the stuff that bonds you together. Oh, yeah, completely. I, which to go back to our human discussion, I think it's seeing the, the human side of the people you're working with. It is. And sometimes I think that can be a struggle for a lot of engineers of getting to reach out and like interact with the rest of the company in that way, too. I think it's really funny when I meet someone and they go, you don't seem like an engineer. And I don't know whether or not to be insulted or not. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? You want to be personal and outgoing. And I've taken a personality test and I am an introvert, but it is very funny in that way. In an ideal situation, what you do is secondary to who you are. So like, it shouldn't be like extremely obvious that somebody is an engineer or is in sales or marketing, is in customer support. You're all just team members. I completely agree. I've also gotten the, you don't seem like an engineer and I never quite know how to take it as well. I think that says more about stereotypes of an engineer than anything else. But I, I am also curious. I think there are some attributes which I've seen which are common amongst different professions. And I think there are definitely some qualities that many engineers share but I don't think they're necessarily bigger personality things. My favorite is when I hire an engineer, especially junior engineers, and they've had a past career and they'll do something in the engineering realm, but it screams, I have experience doing this other thing. One of the junior developers I hired was a technical writer before he learned how to code. And you can just tell the Mm. pull requests are just so well-written and just like so concise and like, 
it just screams like I have experience in this thing and let me have the skill lend itself to engineering. Yeah, which I totally hear you. I also will forever harp on diversity. And I think like diversity of prior experience is also really, really relevant. I think all too often I see or hear folks who are switching careers and maybe go through a boot camp, like dismissing their prior experience. But I think usually it's an asset or it gives them access to a new way to think about software developing that can be a real asset to whatever team they're joining. Totally agreed. Some of my favorite software developers I've ever worked with were prior in the service industry because they're able to multitask, they're able to focus, they're able to see the job at hand, they're able to adjust quickly. I love that. And to your point, a lot of them discount that they were in the service industry before they learned how to code, but I actually find it to be a really appealing aspect of them. Oh, I completely can see how that skill set would be really, really helpful. I've actually, I've thought about, I haven't prepped it for anything yet, but I've thought about giving a talk along the lines of lessons learned from backpacking applied to software development. I love when there are those talks that have crossover in subject matter like that. I love those too, because then you can give that talk to friends and they understand that part of it, but maybe not the technical part of it but they can confirm whether or not it's interesting. So I like that too, where a talk isn't fully, fully technical, but is relevant to audiences outside of who you might normally be giving it to. And then also if one of your colleagues who has prior experience in the service industry were to give a talk like that, they could also share it with people they knew who were also in the service industry. And I think that can be really powerful as well. That reminds me, and last topic that I wanted to cover with you is I wanted to find out how you end up coming up with the ideas for your talks, because I'm curious if you approach it where you do this really cool project, this might turn into a talk, or you're going at it from the opposite standpoint where you're like, this would be a cool talk. Can I find a project that goes with it? Usually it's just something I find interesting and then I end up spending a lot of time on it. And then once I've done that, it's like, oh, this is pretty interesting. I wonder if other people would be also interested in it or if there's a way I can teach it effectively or something like that. I would say it's the usual pattern it's taken so far, but I don't know if there's like a, an exact recipe for me yet. I'm in the middle of writing a CFP about Ractors. And those I really just wanted to learn more about. They're new to Ruby, obviously newish. And I didn't know about them. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to make a small project to play around with them a little. And then that has turned into a CFP. So I think usually that kind of flow is what I've experienced. I'm curious though, like, because every time I talk to you, you always have so many great ideas for talks. But what I can't see, Gemma, is... Have you looked into stuff and spent some time with it and been like, no, this is not for me? Or do you have just a really good skill at picking projects to dig into that actually are something that would ultimately be a great talk? Oh, no. <laughs> I definitely have had things I've started looking into and then abandoned, but I think I abandoned them pretty early, if that makes sense. There are definitely areas that I'm less interested in or just don't have the skill set to really dig into. like anything in the front end that I'll sometimes like dabble in and be like, oh no, this is not an area where I like have a particularly strong skill or, or background or have the background knowledge even to understand what I'm learning. Yeah. So that I makes a lot of sense. We'll dabble. <laughs> we'll dabble like that too. 
Are there certain places that you start with dabbling? Do you tend to spin up like a, an application or you tend to do like certain exercises or just research it? It depends how new something is that I want to look into, but I'll usually some combination of like spinning up a, an IRB console or something like that and just writing different code and seeing what happens to like reading docs or reading if there are release notes or if I'm obviously a big fan of blogging, if there are blog posts. I'll definitely read through those, but really the way I learn best is experientially. So like just getting back a lot of error messages until I can, can figure out what's going on. That makes a ton of sense. It's awesome to get that kind of insight from you. And with that, I think we should wrap up a reminder to everyone that the WNB.RB fireside chats about technical speaking are happening on July 27th at noon Eastern. We will definitely link that up in the show notes. And if you're listening to this, it's very likely that you still have time to register. So please do. RubyConf CFP is still open. Make sure to submit. And uh, Gemma, it was awesome to catch up with you. And I'm excited to talk to you again in a few weeks. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on as a co-host. This was really fun for me. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.